You are the power of this cosmos. You are pure intelligence. You are unspeakable beauty. You are in perfect harmony with the entire cosmos. Stars and unknown stars, <laughs> sun and moon, air and light, the beautiful plant kingdom of mother nature, the waters. <laughs> this is your context. Male-female collaboration and same-sex or opposite-sex intimacy, that power is yours. And you're allowed to have that. Well, welcome everybody. I want to welcome you to the um, Heart of Yoga podcast. And my friend Sri Ram, who is residing in Germany right now, a long-time student of Desikachar. We shared uh, our teacher, uh, together we are guru bhais, guru brothers and welcome Sri Ram. I'm really delighted to meet you in this manner. We met was it two years ago in New York City uh, and you came over for the memorial of Dasikachar who, who died quite recently. The gathering there was so grateful to have your presence there for many reasons. Uh, just the obvious one is that you are a native of, of uh, South India. You were born into that culture that our teachers, Daskachar and Krishnamacharya, are in. So you were already there. We migrated there and tried to understand it. When I think of myself as a 20-year-old coming into Madras for the first time and having no clue <laughs> of the society that I was entering, no language. And it was, um, you know, it was like entering uh, a big puzzle. Uh, it took a lot to, to work out, you know, and um, maybe I worked out this much of it you know, uh, over my lifetime. But it's intriguing for me that you are of that society and that you became a very close friend and student of Desikachar. And you had the, the advantage, you might say, of already being up to speed with the culture that you were born into. I hope you understand what I'm saying here, that you as a native indigenous of, person of South India, you had this uh, particular, you know, you hit the tarmac running. <laughs> you, you knew the society. So could we go right back to your very early life, I would like to know the family that you were born into. Uh, what was your childhood like running around South India? Could, you, could we go back to the beginning and you just sort of outline a few steps on the way for us? What was your early life about? Well, I was born into a South Indian, in a South Indian village, uh, sort of uh, what they call Shaiva Brahmin family as the last of five children in a very tiny village near this uh, very pompous and ancient city of Tanjavur, what they call Tanjur. It's one of the must-sees in the South Indian uh, tourist maps. It's still got one of the most amazing temples of India. And uh, when I grew up in Madras, in the city of Madras, I went to school there. I went to, to a, an English medium school which meant in those days a Catholic school. So, and, but I was born to a family, uh, as I said, a Brahmin family, which meant that uh, there were a lot of rituals and traditional uh, uh, 
rules governing our day-to-day life. But my father, as well as my both my grandfathers, weren't into the line of uh, academics and scholarship uh, in the sense of a traditional Brahmin. So they were into modern lives and modern professions. And in as much my contact with the Indian tradition was not, let us say, like uh, it was would have been for somebody like Deshi Kacha, who was into a family, born into a family where they were all scholars and priestly. Right. Uh, uh, people with priestly knowledge, but what happened? So it was much less my my uh, grandparents or my father, but uh, the women in my family were all singing, and they were singing classical South Indian music. And uh, you see, classical South Indian music—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a very complex, very beautiful music, and the texts, the songs which are sung, they are all texts which are which are not just religious, they're very philosophical, you know? Like uh, they question something like, uh, how can one uh, get into moksha, meaning freedom, spiritual freedom, without understanding nada and prana, meaning understanding the breath and the sound, you know? So this is is an example of the type of uh, text you are dealing with. And of course, other types, uh, other texts which were dealing with subjects like who is the Devi, the divine goddess, you know? Yeah. And she's got these two beautiful eyes, the sun and the moon. They are the morning and the evening. But then she's got the third eye, which is the dawn, uh-huh. the dusk, which is so beautiful. And it's ever there, you know? So, I mean, this is just one of sort of traditional songs which you sing which I have been hearing at home without really not uh, as a kid not understanding the language and the text in depth but still having a stunning melody a stunning piece of music very complex which was um, which was somehow I knew embedded with the knowledge and wisdom and whatever grew very close to my heart so I would say my spiritual inclination where uh, in the context of the Indian, was context of the Indian music, the temples where the gods appeared as beautiful sculptures, not as somebody who is promising you some help or somebody who is uh, going to punish you if you did something wrong, but in, in a, as beautiful sculptures which are pieces of art. So I started to enjoy, in some sense, have a deep relationship with the spirituality of India. And that was enhanced by the fact that I was a very sick child. I mean, I had every imaginable sickness, which a little kid in India, South India, coming from a sort of lower middle class family, you know, not starving, but having enough to eat, but still just sort of, you know, surviving. And that sort of a family, so had all types of sicknesses and and doctors didn't couldn't help and traditional medicine didn't help, uh, modern medicine didn't help. And so I was left at, uh, sort of the help of my mother and grandmother who would say, you know, pray, you know, keep repeating this mantra and do this. And so this became sort of some sort of a self-help where I knew without it, I would die or I would sort of not exist. So it became an imperative for me, these things, you know, spiritual things from different sides, they became imperatives in my young life. But then on the other hand, I had this Catholic school, 
by the nuns in my, uh, what do you call my elementary school and later the brothers and uh, fathers all in their cassocks and uniforms. They were on the one hand, scary pictures. And on the other hand, they presented to me a world which was modern, English based and which sort of full of uh, hope and, you know, a, a promise of a bright future, etc. So I was really torn between these two worlds, the one at home and one in school. So I grew up with all this very South Indian music, very South Indian language, very South Indian gods and cultures and flavors. And on the other hand, love for English, love for English literature, love for modern life and liberal thinking, modern thinking, etc. And so I grew up in this environment and I was not inclined to sports. So I was at home and interested more in things. So I, I really didn't get into more into sort of things which had some relationship to some sort of a self-inquiry. So I was never given to take uh, to sports. So I stayed with studying, reading uh, and dreaming. So this became my childhood. This divide between what was uh, Catholicism, uh, mm -hmm. Christianity, and what is your, your mother and grandmother's uh, beautiful uh, Hindu Vedic background, did that ever come to a point of um, serious conflict for you as a young person? Were you, was there a confusion? That's something which I regret that I never really as a youngster went into this conflict and tried to battle the conflict because I didn't try to battle it. I just tried to uh, juggle with it to sort of, you know, uh, to somehow, uh, to somehow, somehow handle it. And going to school was always a, almost le like a mini trauma. And on the other hand, I started to, my love for some of the things I learned in the school was also there. And uh, so I really didn't, but it was a, it was a deadly struggle. It was internally tore me, it did tear me. And it was coupled sometime by the fact that uh, on the one hand, maybe at home, they were too strict or too traditional. On the other hand, uh, yeah, school was strict in a very, very, in a more uh, brutalizing way. It was strict and it was very tough too. But uh, I always had my own world of music and dream and whatever, you know, gods and whatever, which I could, I could flee, in which I could sort of escape. So I, I found this niche and therefore didn't really try to fight against this conflict. My experience in Madras is that the, uh, the culture of Veda really seemed to receive the uh, Christ Christianity into its own, uh, sort of absorbed it into its own sort of cultural yeah. text. You know, I believe that yeah. you know, one of Christ's disciples, was it Thomas? He ended up yeah. in, India, in South India. And there is so yeah, exactly. way, way back. And there seemed to be, when I visited the churches of South India, uh, they seemed to be like Hindu temples to me, where Christ was the deity, and they'd put yeah, the flowers sure. around the Christ, and and it seemed to just have a just a absorption into that culture that didn't yeah uh, they didn't make a problem around it like some sort of like tribalism of. Um, of opposition or cultures in opposition to each other. At least that was my sense of it. Yeah, uh, I believe you. Yeah. I, I had a very interesting, in my, uh, in my school, there was a long corridor and at the end of the corridor, there was a picture of, uh, of uh, Mary, somewhere around the area of her heart, what we would say the heart, you know, in yoga, anahata, whatever. Uh, yeah. There was this uh, glow and something, you know, like a, I'm sorry. 
it was not it was not uh, mary it was jesus a picture of jesus there was uh, along this at the end of this corridor there was a picture of jesus and there where his heart is what we call anahata chakra there was this glow and there was a sort of a divine thing yeah. there and you see we have a very similar picture which is which was hanging in my own house it was of hanuman hanuman the sort of uh, okay. the monkey god of ramayana my hanuman and a chain and here you know rama and sita sort of hanging as his sort of inspiration you know yeah, yeah. so i mean so there were uh, parallels there were sort of things where uh, where i felt at home i mean i i mean see christianity and catholicism was is a, was a reality around me so it it, it was not in that sense it, i wasn't torn apart you know i may and i had lots of great christian friends who would come to my house or i would go to their house and spend time and so but personally it was it would ultimately it was not a conflict between the catholic school and the indian tradition but it was it was a conflict between old and new between between uh, you know seeking a spiritual essence or you know, trying to find a meaning of what is really you know what you really want in life yeah. and then uh, doing things which are only oriented towards learning a uh, you know getting into a profession making money and making sure you get your uh, uh, pension or whatever you know so to say so that you can die peacefully so this sort of so this was a dichotomy actually what it represented the sort of modern uh, western idealisms uh, going to that catholic school that you were um, attracted to those ideas or intimidated by those i the modernism that was uh, symbolized by the the western christian school as long as i was there i didn't feel you uh, know i didn't think in a political or, 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 or social or you know universal sense about it, it was a personal uh, uh, problem right. it was more when i uh, started to as a as a post teenager with 18 or 19 i went into a regular track i left school i i i, I mean i met a few people who, there was this ramakrishna math you might have you might know it in mailapur near the temple there is this ramakrishna math which is a which has got a very huge library and a huge bookshop too and i used to visit it often because uh, i used to read books there read books and on Sha, from shankara etc because I had a, a third conflict going with me. One was, of course, is a family, a traditional South Indian family, and then the school. The third was I myself uh, had an urge to become a sort of some sort of a monk or a recluse and move away from society. And you know, as a South and every Indian, but even more so for a South Indian, Varanasi is sort of some sort of a big, big uh, destination, you know. and for a south indian who has never crossed the borders of tamil nadu or mean not travel uh, 200 kilometers away from madras for me varanasi was unimaginably far away but still there was this dream of going to varanasi living at the ganges and not being uh, not possessing anything etc that was not was a dream it's a dream of many people who speak to spirituality do we lead a life connected to the world or sort of removed from the world so i was going through this conflict very much so ramakrishna math became a, some sort of a haven where i would go read books and yeah. get into another space sometimes i have discussions with some of the people who were working at the bookshops etc so that was also going in my life on the one hand so i became interested in uh, in the intellectual part of indian tradition on the one hand 
And on the other hand, I was into and it was in an English school. Literature or English literature was one of my favorite subjects. I read a lot of literature. I read a lot of classical literature like Shakespeare. And then slowly, as I got out of college, I became my interest in English literature grew, and uh, I entered an engineering college where I was very very unhappy because it's sort of you know in India if you come from a middle class family, you either at least in the eighties nineties you either become an engineer or a doctor. Yeah. And if you can't become one of these two, you try to become a, an auditor or a, somebody who works in a bank or something. So this is what everybody wants to do. So, uh, you know, so I was one of the huge uh, herds of uh, sheep and I went into the into this college of engineering, got myself admitted. And after a year, realized that I was totally out of place there. And I was only going to increase my conflicts in life. So that was the time time when I, when on the one hand, my spiritual inclinations took a larger hold on me. And I was thinking, yes, yoga and meditation and all this. And on the other hand, I got into a group of friends uh, who, who were a big liberation for me because they asked me to rethink about traditional values, about the role of woman, about the role of caste, about the role of uh, injustice which has happened in India on the one hand and uh, uh, friends who sort of pushed me into this line of thought where I slowly started to liberate myself from traditional values, also traditional constrictions. And on the other hand, I had, uh, I had a strong contact through my uh, friends who were all sort of inclined to me similarly. And we, we got together, we were smoking a lot of dope and we had a lot of uh, fun, we were going out. And, and we got into people like uh, Robert Lang and uh, David Cooper. I don't know if you, you might, might have read them too because they were very famous in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And into a lot of uh, English literature too. So, and then I slowly got into reading a lot of Marx. And uh, so I suddenly, out of being a very, uh, having a conflict between a traditional Vedic uh, home and a sort of a Catholic school, it became a very complicated, uh, uh, complex uh, conflict with Marx and, uh, and modern psychology. And even Illich was saying, stop schooling and, you know, etc. And people like uh, Shankara who saying, throw out all conventions and uh, uh, leave behind. And, and on the one hand, and, and another Shankara saying, uh, who, who is being represented in society as somebody who, who is sort of a vener- very venerable, traditional Hindu uh, preacher. So there were all these conflicts going on within me, which is when I decided I really have to find a solution because I was going mad within myself, you know, emotionally, psychologically, etc. So I was getting really torn and I was meeting a few people. I got a little bit into this. uh, There's a a transcendental meditation. I met a few of the meditation teachers. I was not interested. And, you know, getting into as an Indian, getting into something like Marx on the other one hand and something like um, like uh, Shankara on the other hand. It's just two uh, worlds which are too much apart. Right. And because of in, in, inclinations and uh, uh, political inclinations and uh, uh, language inclinations, some of my friends and I, we got together when we started a theater in Chennai, in Madras, where we started uh, doing plays to sort of, uh, you know, and we were uh, to, to sort of uh, make an impact on society, to have a sort of some sort of a social relevance. And uh, so we were doing modern theater and some of my friends were having artist background and they were 
in touch with the modern art circles in in Madras, and Madras has had at that time has still a very big circle, uh, very big um, group of modern painters and modern thinkers, and uh, there were a lot of people from Kerala who were in Madras who were great writers, modern writers. So um, suddenly, I was connected with a lot of people who were not at all from my world, and it was very exciting and. So I was uh, getting into Indian Charvaka system, not Shankara, which is very sort of orthodox and very theist, but Charvaka is the Indian atheism, old Indian atheism of, let's say, times of Patanjali or something. And that, that was a time and then I said, no, this is not my thing. I would like to delve more into somebody like Patanjali, which is more about psychology and spirituality and so on. You know? So I was, it was for me actually a, a, a nexus of, you know, Marx and R.D. Lang and, and, and Shankara and Charvaka and, uh, and uh, Tantric uh, Devi, Devi worship, etc. You know? So wow. somehow that was a meeting point for me. You had a full hand of many yeah. options. Yeah, been um, confu confusing, exciting, but confusing, perhaps. Very confusing and very exciting. And uh, yeah, so there was a really it was, it was a big collusion of ideas and I was being thrown around and I didn't know what my <laughs> what my future was going to be. I only knew I don't want to be an engineer. I cannot continue to be in the theater because it's, it's too much of madness out there. And too much of uh, uh, too much of aggression out there, which I'm not made for. Yeah. And uh, uh, and the world of spirituality, too many too many uh, conventional people, and it's also not the right thing for me. So I was really lost. I didn't know what to do. I'm surprised you didn't just become a holy man and wander off and cap, cap, catch a train up to Varanasi and just give it all away. But yeah, probably. <laughs> I think this is where the libido uh, plays a very, very positive role. <laughs> I see. You know, you just want to do that. So, um, right. And of course, as I told you, starting with my grandmother and mother, who, and, and of course, sisters who have uh, been learning music at home, they've actually always been very strong influences in my life. And one of my very early friends, she was. She, my one of my like a girlfriend. She was twenty years older to me, and uh, I was a twenty-year-old man, and she was forty. And she really pushed me out of traditional thinking, saying, "You're go not you are gods, and you have to question our society and caste and injustice and all this." You know, right, right, right. And so I, I so there were, uh, there were a few other women who also shook me up quite a bit. And there was a young woman who was studying with Krishna Macharya, so I knew about him. And you know, I didn't want to go to a traditional Brahmin scholar and learn. I, I had my reservations. I didn't know Krishna Macharya was such a fabulous uh, f liberal man. Mm. But then that was a time when I met Anjali. And, and that really sort of uh, uh, made a major difference uh, to me because um, suddenly I found here. A Westerner who's got nothing to do with my culture, who looks grossly different, whose body language is so different, coming all the way here, a young woman, and living all alone and fending for her own survival and learning Indian art. Right. 
it really sh- sh- i mean it amazed me i mean i mean I had, because i was living in uh, not very far away from adair where the theosophical society has its headquarters and there are a lot and you do see some foreigners you know some freaky western men and women you know with long hair beards or or you know women with sort of uh, locks uh, almost like dreadlocks and and wearing uh, sarees on cycles and so you do see these very very odd did see these very odd figures on cycles or on foot in the 70s in um, in that area so it was not totally uh, amazing but here yeah, i was very amazed to see she was my neighbor and so it also opened my mind to doing your own thing being totally independent doing your own thing and and that it's possible i mean if somebody can come all the way from a foreign country all alone as a woman too and live in my midst where i know my sisters can't go out and live on their own it's just not possible wow so that did sort of open my eyes in a very different way and and for me so it that was in there was indian art at least india interest for indian art and then indian philosophy interest for indian philosophy and spirituality and then the modern western education theater uh, literature etc so it became a very uh, uh, strong uh, what do you call uh, meeting right. so which gave me courage to say i can do my own thing why not right right so somehow your meeting with with anjali right there and i just want to slip in here anjali is your part your intimate partner who you're now living with decades later in germany with who's uh, was a wonderful uh, dancer of indian south indian classical music to what is it called bharatanatyam um yeah, bharatanatyam is a wonderful dancer so your link to her was somehow a catalyst for you to look further into your this interest that had been sparked with krishnamacharya yeah exactly and i had a friend in my theater circle i had a i was into theater for what three years we were running running the most modern theater in madras and uh, we were in the papers and and uh, so it was a very major thing and we had a lot of people so one of my uh, two of people a couple of people who were in the theater they were studying with the uh, deshikacha they knew krishnamacharya one of them his entire family was studying with krishnamacharya so i heard of these people i thought i won't go to krishnamacharya but deshikacha i can look him up you know and since i was very i mean i didn't i i, I, I like i told you this uh, this uh, lady this elderly friend i had uh, she introduced me to j krishnamurthy when i was 20 and uh, she introduced me to j krishnamurthy and i was associated i mean i had read a little bit and visited a, a few of his lectures in madras so i i didn't know about the connection between deshikacha and j krishnamurthy but i just thought okay he's a modern man and it's no problem and my friend said he's also studied engineering so what's your problem just come on and so on so and he and he sort of told deshikacha and deshikacha uh, uh, sort of gave me an appointment i mean i was given an appointment to go meet him so i went there and uh, met him you know so it's uh, how it happened that i said wow. yes i'm going to take a step tell us about this uh, first meeting and why did that um, result in a step wait you said a first step what, what how did that happen what was your impression of desikachar i was glad he was not a 
traditional scholar with a beard uh, uh, with on white hair where i would have thought he he's maybe too conservative for my taste but i'd also didn't expect to find a man who was in sort of you know like a typical madras urban style a sort of what they call, what we used to call in the 70s a terry cotton pant and terry cotton shirt you know right. this sort of polyester <laughs> clothes trousers and and a sort of a slack shirt you know it's uh, i didn't expect something like that so but i was pretty open and happy and and we had a conversation see i was for me yoga meant not meant yoga it was yoga it was about understanding what is the mind what are we doing why are we here so and meditation had been into and i was practicing and asanas i had got here and there uh, and i was practicing some asanas now and then but it didn't interest me really i was only interested in these questions Right. but somehow i approached and spoke to him about my questions and about my deeper questions he said uh, you study asanas and then we'll see you know so he always almost sort of you know ignored all my deep spiritual questions in this first conversation i had with him for about half an hour and then he called in his uh, most senior assistant you know out of his assistants his most senior assistant that was one prabhakar who was sort of a primus uh, student and he said prabhakar uh, give uh, classes to sri ram and give twice a week he'll come here and take classes so i uh, and deshika uh, chara said okay and every saturday i don't remember every once in a week he'll be giving lectures and i should come and krishna chara will be giving lectures once in a week i should also come so i started going regularly to the lectures of deshika chara and krishna macharya and uh, two classes a week with prabhakar asana classes you know so i started studying and suddenly i felt you know my chest and the breath and you know the stomach in a way i had not felt it in a different way and not felt it at all before so the breath started to do its magic on my body and of course in in a sort of combination with the postures so it was not just about uh, doing uh, ardha uttanasana or utkatasana as a youngster but you know really doing some deep breathing with holding of breath etc so it became an amazing uh, it had an amazing vitalizing effect on me so i was convinced that it's good and slowly i also realized that uh, through this practice of body and breath one it does something to the mind so it's not about uh, you have to think you have to enter a different space and come back with your mind to the same conflicts and you look at the conflict differently right what happened to your all your various life uh persuasions or your confusing options that were had been presented in your early life did they remain yeah i mean they took new dimensions because first of all uh, uh, first of all um, i was slowly uh, entering into a new world of yoga with deshikacha uh, and uh, krishnamacharya too because i mean krishnamacharya's classes they were sort of uh, very complex because he was speaking in very sanskritized tamil and it was not easy to follow it was all yoga phil- philosophy yoga sutra and some other texts and deshikacha himself was teaching a lot out of yoga sutra and about asana practice pranayama practice and then these re- this regular practice that was doing a lot with me on the one hand and on the other hand i was starting to having entered big conflicts with my very very close friends who were into theater which became very dramatic and then i was getting entering into a deep liaison or what do you call it a 
a sort of relationship with a with a woman mm-hmm. as a young boy living at home of mm-hmm. his mother's cooked food uh, uh, mother's food you know wow. which was unthinkable so it was all a, it was a what do you call a, a, a robber and police game i mean i was hiding i wasn't hiding all the time you know hiding from the eyes of society hiding hiding behind here hiding behind there not uh, you know not getting caught so to say you know not getting caught walking on the streets with a woman or you know holding her hands or you know much less uh, going out somewhere with her or whatever you know so i we played this hide and seek game for about a year yeah. after which i said oh no this can't go on so i spoke to my extremely considerate mild and um, mild and liberal minded father actually and he said sriram i don't mind whatever you do as long as you don't ask me to tell your mother <laughs> so it's your job you tell your mother <laughs> so i said oh my god i was, I was hoping that he would sort of uh, talk to her but anyway my mother was uh, didn't really take it too well she said i might get a heart attack what are you doing i said okay if you're going to get a heart attack you're going to get a heart attack that's it she had a concern about uh, anjali being from the west and being a non hindu all that on top of the fact that i was dating with a woman and i was not i was oh. still a youngster at home it was I, not the time my elder sister and my elder brother weren't still married one I, elder sister and my elder brother weren't married yet and i was I, already sort of dating with a woman so it was unthinkable so anyway so this became a very major conflict in my personal life and uh, and then this uh, uh, this sort of very emotional experience of going on stage and acting and all the emotions it rakes up in you and then this desi kacha and yoga became a very strong what do you call pole right i would say anchor and say anchors right word it be, uh, the yoga became with desi kacha and prabhakar became a very big anchor in my personal life right right and what was beautiful was it in some sense i could uh, live with my with my experience and understanding of the very liberal a revolutionary modern western thinking based on the people i had read and based on the theater uh, uh, ideas uh, we were playing and it integrated the old traditional knowledge which was part of my own childhood part of my own uh, background and which i loved you know right. and the temple right. so how did this progress you were you were being pulled you were very drawn to to uh, what you were studying with Deskachar and his assistant and i'm so um, fascinated that you had the opportunity to be in the uh, to understand even the language of krishnamacharya and and the teaching that he was given uh, giving out there so this was extraordinary so how did this uh, how did it progress your your participation in the krishnamacharya yoga mandiram and the conflict of being out in the world <laughs> being a young boy <laughs> dating a, a a wonderful western woman and artist and among all these eccentric yeah. people and so forth yeah it eventually happened that uh, uh, also because uh, because also finally uh, it was important for us you know if we wanted to continue as a partners i had i had to get to know her culture too yeah so we decided that we would officially sort of uh, get uh, you know officially sort of uh, confirm that we are partners in front of my family 
And so we did that and, uh, and I took leave and went to you, uh, her country for two years. I see. So we stay there and to make sure. And in the meantime, and we stayed on, and, but we were in India as long as she had her uh, basic education in, in uh, uh, Bharatanatyam so that she could start performing. So she was studying, she had studied, to, she had covered two and a half years in India. She had a strong foundation and her teachers were very uh, good to her. And so she came, she did her Arangetram initial performance. So we moved to Germany for two years and started living together for the first time. And that was when I decided that uh, my life has to, I mean, I have to have one pole. I can't be between, you know, being in a traditional profession or trying to go into a traditional life a la going to Varnasi or being an engineer or being into theater and modern life. So I had to decide. And so I decided that it is important for me two years of West and I'll be there, have my experience and have a taste of the West and go back to India to restart to rewind and start a new life. And these two years were very important for us as partners. And of course, also for me to have a, have a distance to India. And, uh, and what was very beautiful for was that Deshikacha and Prabhakar, the teacher with whom I was regularly learning asanas, they were both extremely friendly to me. They became, uh, they, they took interest in my life. They got to know Anjali too. They got to know my personal background. And I had that sort of blessing and well wishes. So after two years, we came back to India. And when we came back to India, we were a couple, we were established, we were accepted. My family was very open to us and it all went very smoothly. And this was when Deshikacha said, the place is open. You come and engage yourself full time into learning and ultimately teaching yoga. But uh, so he really opened up a huge uh, uh, thing for me and uh, I was still a little scared it was you know was he going to manipulate me was he going to sort of you know uh, here's somebody who's floundering a little bit not knowing exactly where his uh, moorings are uh, is he going to capture me and maybe you know uh, make a sort of personal uh, mold me according to his wishes am I really uh, somebody who's uh, Totally, who, who wants to be totally devoted to him. So I had a lot of conflicts. But then Prabhakar and many of uh, Deshikacha's uh, students, we, we, uh, they were all teaching with him. They were all an amazing group of rebellious dropouts out of modern society who are not traditionalists. So we were all very, so he was, Deshikacha, there was one of the most amazing things about him he was he managed to gather around him a group of people who were all liberal but in some sense tradition uh, 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 bound or with knowledge of tradition but who were not at all uh, conservative who were not at all narrow-minded who are very open to the modern world very liberal thinkers so i mean we were suddenly i found myself in the midst of a group of young men and women where all had dropped out, were, were all liberal thinkers. I would have never in my life anywhere in India found such a group of dry, dry, vibrant pe people with vibrant ideas. And all of us, our uniting factor was yoga and Deshikacha. Right. I think it's, it's, it's an amazing contribution of Deshikacha that he could draw people, you know. I mean, even if I look at many of you, from the 70s, 80s, early 90s, etc. I mean, you have 
you have you have been interested in JK. You have been interested in uh, uh, alternate thinking. You've been interested in alternate healing. You've all interested in all uh, uh, alternate societies. You have experienced the hippie uh, culture. You have experienced the drug culture. So there was a lot of people, even from the Western students, who were who were not the run of the mill people who wanted to do yoga because it's interesting on you. So there was a huge commonality amongst all of us. And this commonality was represented by a mind called Deshikacha, who was very much, in, which was very much into yoga, but not in the traditional conservative way. So I found this very amazing and uh, that really wrapped me in, so to say. I often say that Deshikacha was a bridge from his father to the modern world. And that, you know, <clears throat> as you said, Krishna, Krishnamacharya taught in, in Sanskrit and Tamil, and he was, a, you know, really of a, an, an ancient person with his, you know, deeply rooted in the in this wisdom culture of ancient times, and yeah. forth. And it was really the brilliance of Dasagachar and his his uh, modern, you know, Western style e education, science and engineering, and so forth. And also his visits to Europe of many times going to teach uh, Judu Krishnamurti. He yeah. said that uh, it was uh, JK that helped Krish uh, Desikachar understand the Western mind. He said once that JK mm -hmm. taught him everything about the West. He said he taught him how to eat with a knife and fork in Europe, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, I understand what you're saying there. Was that your experience? Also, that Deskachar um, was a bridge for you from the the ancient wisdom that Krishnamacharya brought forth uh, into the modern world, and it was Deskachar yeah. who was that catalyst for you. Absolutely, mm -hmm. and uh, suddenly I've, I was in uh, I was in the sort of uh, uh, in the atmosphere of a person where I could. Uh, I could integrate the different facets of my life where I could resolve the conflicts, you know, yeah. uh, uh, conflicting experiences which I've had. I could resolve the conflicting experiences which I had gone through. Yeah. Without making it a sort of trauma or making it a, a problem. Right. I mean, I could, uh, I could let them stand next to each other and think it's a very colorful picture. Why not? Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, finding peace is not about, uh, you know, not about uh, making a whole lot of pieces. Right. You right. know, then you're just sort of doing some repair, repair work. You don't have a painting. You just have a collage. And it's, it's, so actually, uh, something which he told me at that time, uh, I mean, I'll try to put it into his own words. It came to me as very, very striking. See, the question of... Uh, whether you need a God or whether you need a religious picture or whether you need a, um, uh, I mean, what, whether you need a religious head or even a guru, you know, who imposes upon you and say, yes, so it's, that's it, you do meditation. Because as I told you, my question was meditation. No, I was not so much interested in, in sort of, you know, asanas or something. But he said something which is very, very uh, amazing. See, this meditation is an unraveling. There is always mystery around us, yeah? You can find mystery everywhere, provided you as a seeker is serious. And mystery is not, cannot be limited to symbols or God. Mystery can be found in anything, provided we seek it. So it's in the hands of the seeker. Right. You know? So 
I mean, you can take a piece of a, 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 a leaf, a fallen leaf, and it's a piece of mystery you can unravel. So it can present itself, it's as complex as, let us say, let's say, for instance, a breath. You can say it's breath, it's going in and out and finished, it's, you're done with it. But you keep looking at it, it becomes such a mystery. So you can really go into deep thought and reflection and find out about existence or your own existence, why you are here. So this idea came across very strongly in the way he tried to uh, support deep reflection without saying, you know, we are going to do some deep reflection. <laughs> it's like, you know, somebody saying, we are going to do some fantastic asana, we are going to do handstand, come on. <laughs> yeah, the, the best meditator from, from here to Mount Kailash, I, he had his feet very firmly in his father's camp, though, didn't he? He was deeply rooted in everything that his teacher was, deeply um, learned from so much time with his father in, mm -hmm. in his father's world. And yet he traveled lightly into the modern world too. And as you said, gathered all these people, gathered us around him who were dropouts and hippies and alternative mm -hmm. uh, lifestyle people, very yeah. much of modern world. And he seemed to be able to be a bridge into the into these minds in a way that we could understand a little bit about his father's world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's pretty amazing because I think in a, in a sense, see, he himself has... Uh, has uh, had these conflicts in a sense. See, unlike, unlike his uh, three sisters and his two brothers, I mean, okay, the, the two elder sisters got married early, but they were, I mean, at least the second sister, I know she's learned from Krishnamacharya in great depths, you know. I think mm -hmm. she's one of the one of his uh, very important students. And the youngest sister of Deshikacha, she was um, very young, and um, of course, therefore, she was at home in a time at a time at a time when Krishnamacharya would probably have had a lot of time. So she, I guess, in that sense, also learned a lot from him. But the two sons of Deshika, two sons of Krishnamacharya, the Deshikacha's elder brother and younger brother, learned continuously and for over many years with him, and stayed with him, and even taught along with Krishnamacharya in his early years in Chennai, you know, in Madras. I mean. In the same house, sometimes in the same room. Deshikacha left. He became an engineer. He, he went to study. He became an engineer. He left and was working. And at a later point, we all know from his biography or from Krishnamacharya's biography that uh, how Deshikacha came back into wanting to study from his father. So Deshikacha really understood the other world before really coming into yoga. And also he didn't come into yoga only as a son of a great yogi, but also somebody who thought yoga is important. Yeah. Yoga has a lot of meaning, has a lot of substance, is very relevant to the modern world. So he came out of a conviction, not out of a, out of a, out of a family tradition or, or because it was, a, it was a normal. Right, right. And uh, of course, he not only had a, a, was into this modern world of civil engineering or whatever, he was also, he moved away from the tradition, not just away from being with his parents, 
but also moving away from the tradition and you know being very liberal moving with people from all castes and communities and uh, being a fun person and uh, therefore i think uh, he developed a very liberal mind and imagine one of his early earliest students because is krishnamurti you know so i'm sure <laughs> so he really you know that would have done the given the rest uh, you know to sort of sharpen his wits and sharpen his thinking and you know and make him in spite of his devoted uh, feelings towards his father remain critical and whatever so i think uh, deshikacha also integrates a lot of very very different factors in his own personality and his own being and uh, yeah yeah very fascinating person yes he was uh, he and he did seem to integrate them in a in a way that was pretty seamless to me i mean he could take he could bring in he fell in love with judu krishnamurti in a very uh, tangible way he was deeply um, grateful for that relationship and then later yeah. on yuji krishnamurti and they were you know they became very very close close to each other too yeah yeah and i witnessed their that that uh, intimate um, connection that they had and he seemed to be able to straddle this world of the of tradition and and hold it very dearly and yet he understood and felt the what was being offered by the two krishna murtis yeah this is really amazing see i remember, i remember once many years ago i was teaching at that time in the mandiram and uh, it was a german scholar he had organized a very big uh, it organized a very big sort of inter religious meeting or symposium worldwide symposium in madras and there were people from uh, all over the world including dalai lama etc etc had come to speak and deshkacha was also invited to speak yeah this young german man he was learning with deshkacha he was coming to he was coming to yoga mandiram taking classes and he had invited dalai lama he had invited uh, uh, the head of the shivananda ashram in rishikesh and all types of people you know and then deshkacha so uh, deshkacha asked some of us to join him so we gave him company and we all went over there and uh, it was sometime one morning and then he gave a lecture and it was over and after some time some some other lecture i think dalai lama somebody spoke and then and then there's the head of the one of these ashrams in rishikesh spoke you know and this man was talking he was in an orange robe etc and we were sitting in the second row or first row something and deshkacha suddenly stood up you know we are very obedient students we were you know if your teacher stands you have to stand you can not sit you know so we had to stand up and he still walked out and we had to walk out i mean the three of us were the three his students we were so embarrassed walking out in the middle of somebody speaking <laughs> and but that was him he says no i've got people waiting in the yoga mandiram i got my agenda and i'm going i mean it was one way of saying you know i've got a simple agenda and i'm going to follow it and the other way and also saying at the same time this man in orange robes i'm not particularly interested in what he has to say right 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 so he had a very rebellious way of dealing with things too and um, yeah and uh, yeah so he was an amazing person he could the thing is he could put in he was very simple and also expressing things i mean he sometimes some very deep philosophical thoughts would come up in in very very simple words which is uh, yeah which made him very special which is why uh, he definitely didn't like the um, the spiritual business of 
No, no, he despised it, I would say. Like this Swamiism and people uh, posing as gurus and, 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 and uh, you know, know as uh, he was... No, he despised it. See, yeah. he despised it. Because, see, and, and in that sense, he's, he was also like his father. His, see, his father was also, although he was such a hugely learned traditional scholar, he was in his own way a rebel. Yeah. He would say, you are not a Brahmin. You are just a, I mean, you, you're, you're, I mean, you've got a, a you're born into some community, but if it's because you're born into some community, you're not, you don't become a Brahmin. A Brahmin who's got some sort of learning, who's sort of certain inclinations, and who's really on the seek out for Brahman. You know, right. somebody who's, in the seek, uh, who's seeking what is Brahma, yeah. what is this God consciousness, yeah? Yeah. So, so he had his very, very clear ideas about uh, uh, things like caste and religion and in, that, yeah. in a very, very liberal way. I recall being, you mentioned the Ramakrishna Mutt down in the Mayapur tank. And I, I used to like going there too. There, there was some something there, you know, there was mm -hmm. a, a power, a presence or something. Yeah, it's true. And um, I was well aware at that time that Desikachar had dismissed um, you know, Hindu temple religion, you know, anything that was exploiting the gullibility of the public and the whole yeah. sort of fake holy isms of, you know, yeah. Indian, you know, orthodox um, systems. But one, one day I, was, I walked down there with him and there was a sort of a, a quietness came over him, you know, and I, I said to him, I like going to that place. And he said, mm -hmm. His words were, yes, there's something there, he said. There's something mm -hmm. there. And um, at another occasion, I took him to New Zealand when we did The Heart of Yoga. The book came out in 1995. Mm -hmm. And he came down and we toured him around New Zealand a little bit. And he went to this Hindu temple in, in, mm -hmm. in Auckland. And again... He entered it with some sort of like sincerity. This man who was, you know, the deeply influenced by both Christian Murtis, he nevertheless had a sentiment for the sincerity of of his uh, of the culture of Veda. That mm -hmm. he, he never he didn't just abandon it. That's what I meant. He said it had his foot in both camps. Somehow. Yeah. He was a bridge of ancient to modern. I felt. Mm -hmm. I think so, because I, uh, I mean, let us take Yoga Sutra, for instance. I mean, he had very, very great reverence for this text, you know? Yeah. And uh, it was a very deep reverence. And, uh, um, and uh, although he, he did not care much for these inst modern Hindu institutions or didn't care for them almost not at all, yeah. um, still he had very great reverence for what the Upanishads taught or the Vedas taught. And he was not gullible. I mean, he wouldn't say, oh, the God is out there and the God is in the moon and God is in the wind. And he wouldn't say God is in the moon and the wind in the sense it might uh, be interpreted by somebody who's very sort of gullibly religious or somebody who's fanatically religious. He understood the sort of intensity of feeling behind it, you know, understood the intensity of you know, yearning, uh, yearning to address forces which are not within us. Right. Yearning to address or to yearning to relate to or communicate with forces which are outside us. 
so uh, that's why also vedic chanting became a very very strong influence in his life and and uh, i mean his house i mean i've uh, when when krishnamacharya recited the building would resonate you know it was in a loud strong voice right. and it was very beautiful uh, voice even for uh, such an old man and which was fascinated by it by vedic chanting his mother um namagiriyama would say that at one point she could not tell who was chanting whether it was desikachar or her husband because uh -huh, he, okay. he duplicated the mantra so mantra so well okay yeah, yeah sure yeah and that became an important part of your life didn't it this uh vedic yeah, yeah it became part of my life because see i i had this background in indian music so yeah. of course because of that my voice is trained and i can hold the pitch and whatever you know and i'm a tamilian which means my knowledge and although i was born to my, because i was born into a brahmin family i had a lot of uh, sanskrit in my tamil a lot of sanskrit words going to the uh, tamil of uh, brahmins and therefore i had some sort of connection to sanskrit and a new lot of songs and prayers and sanskrit but otherwise zero knowledge of sanskrit so it all started only with yoga with uh, the times of deshikachar he offered these classes the vedic vadhyayanam classes and he said sriram you must join actually wished that i join because he thought it was good for me because i had a good voice and because he knew that i had a good diction because of my music background etc and theater background of course you know it makes you very conscious of you know how you use your voice and um i started and uh, slowly got uh, slowly got uh, involved and um, but at the same time i still had my you know teenager precautions getting into you know vedas and it sounds a little bit like too my religious etc but of course i knew deshikacha was a very liberal person so it was not a problem really but still i was a little cautious and but then i slowly started to love and enjoy it what is uh, what is a mantra or vedic um, chanting for you now you know what did what did that do for you what what is it for you this this love that you have that seemed to arise quite um spontaneously and naturally for me uh, i'm going to a world where i'm speaking with we're uh, speaking with forces which are there which i'm not thinking about in my day to day life but which uh, which are there and of which i am a part right of i mean it gives me a sense of being a microcosmic particle which is which is sort of uh, just not merely part of a macrocosm but a microcosmic particle in which the entire macrocosm is sort of present you know this sort of a uh, this sort of a awareness many many of the vedic chanting texts impart it's the subject of many of the vedic chanting texts secondly it is uh, it is uh, a sort of you know and like if i would go to a shrink i mean if i would go to a let us say a psychoanalyst i would lie there and talk 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 and this talking is a sort of uh, it's a sort of emptying emptying your soul emptying your mind uh, coming to a say a, a state of uh, uh, you know of being quiet calm and empty so speaking speaking out loudly throwing the words out and projecting your voice 
is part is part of this process of emptying the soul you know so it's a part of linking yourself and therefore becoming empty you know and becoming and surrendering yourself and therefore becoming empty so i it's become a very very major influence for me in my psyche in my mind and also for my meditation practice of understanding life that so that's also why it's become very important Does and uh, yeah seem to link you to an ancient world do you feel like that's exactly the third point that's the third point i'm coming to see mm. whenever i chant without me wanting to or or sort of uh, trying to wish it it happens i'm linked to deshikacha for instance you know somebody is he's there and of course every sunday there was let's say uh, i i mean as long as i i mean almost every sunday i try to do it every sunday i do a piece a long piece of chant it's called arunam it takes about an hour it's a very it's a long chant which address, which is addressed to the morning to the rising sun and uh, and there is a tradition which krishnamacharya was in in which uh, every sunday this arunam is uh, recited in the mornings for an hour and it was an explicit wish of krishnamacharya that uh, it be continued this tradition and deshikacha was doing it he was doing it all the years and whenever i was in uh, i was living in the meantime in the west and whenever i was uh, in india i would uh, chant with him every sunday etc and now since he is no more i try to do it and keep it up every sunday so what i'm saying so when i'm doing this suddenly deshikacha is there krishnamacharya because i've also done this along with krishnamacharya and deshikacha uh, on some sundays in india Uh, uh when krishnamacharya was alive so uh, so i'm he, they are there the two of them are there but it's also a question of an entire tradition so it's almost like it's almost like you know saying things which have already been said thousands of years ago and and integrating uh, mankind or human kind or knowledge of human kind into this so it's why are we praying to the sun so it's not about you know the sun needs us the sun doesn't need us because we are the human being is almost just some sort of a cataclysmic uh, thing which is there which can get wiped out any day or any second but sun doesn't need us you know and sun will go on but still we need the sun so it's just like saying hello sun thank you that you are there yeah yeah so just giving him that piece of respect or you know recognition which it's uh, which is its due yeah and it's not that the sun is going to miss out uh, my, my on my recognition but if i recognize it then i i sort of you know i know my place i know the diminution uh, the diminutive uh, you know uh, size of my place here you feel your um, your place in the cosmic domain frankly yeah exactly so and i'm linked together with all these great uh, masters and all these great uh, human beings who have lived before us and you know You know last year we went just before the pandemic be- began we went on pilgrimage to Kailash and to Lake Manasarovar and followed in the steps of Krishnamacharya uh-huh. and came down to That's- the Mysore palace mm-hmm. and uh, in the Maharaja Mysore and we taught in this temple uh, a Lakshmi temple an ancient mm-hmm. temple it's a you know Indian historic site and where apparently krishnamacharya had taught the maharaj of mysore it was his teaching sort of platform and and mm-hmm. uh, i sat there on those stones and felt that 
you know, they <laughs> hundreds of generations had gone before and for yeah, walked those stones. And, you know, the mantras and so forth, I could feel this continuity of, of, yeah. our, of our ancestors, you know. So I have a feeling for what you're, what you're saying there. Yeah, it's, it's a, and that's something which, uh, which, which only through us, uh, one can only get through a sense of parampara, you know. Yeah. If you know the word, you know, for, you know, in the sense of, you know, parampara in the sense of, you know, from a teacher to, to teacher to teacher, etc. Yeah. yeah. And I wanted to ask you um, specifically, so Desikachar is your teacher, is your yeah. personal teacher. You feel that connection to him specifically mm -hmm. as your teacher, correct? Yes, I, yes, I do, of course. Yeah, very much. Could you describe that, that, that feeling? That, what is that relationship to be able to say, um, I have a teacher? Because I just mentioned that because, of course, it's a very important part of, of the yoga tradition of the, the Guru Parampara to actually, you know, in fact, Eskachar, he called it the heart of yoga, you know, this mm -hmm. teacher relationship. Could you describe what that, what does that mean for you to be able to say, I have a teacher? He is somebody who knows me. He knows me. Right. It doesn't even, I, I wouldn't even say he has the total understanding for me or total love for me. I mean, those are things which come and don't, or don't come, you know, yeah, but yeah. he really knows me, but not to knows me in terms of, you know, somebody who's got something uh, who's got any negative ideas and much to the totally to the contrary yeah. I, I just mean this uh, the mere fact of having somebody who knows you well yeah where you feel this human being knows you is a is an amazing feeling you know i mean of course it can be one's own very close friend or partner or parent who knows one also very very well but uh, this person is neither your partner nor your mother or your father you know Right. This person is neutral, has, leads, his, her, leads her or his own life and yeah. is away from you. And in that sense, it's, it's totally different. So to have somebody who really knows you, that's one thing. That's very essential for me, that Desh Kacha was one person who knew me. And maybe why I also regard him as a deeper teacher is he has not only known me, he has uh, not fought against what I want to be. I mean, even if I have, let's say, things which he didn't like in me or, or things which he wasn't uh, accepting, he was accepting, I mean, he, he was accepting in terms of, he may not, sorry, not accepting, things which he didn't, he may not have liked or didn't like, he was still not trying to, uh, you know, he didn't try to uh, make something else out of me in sense, he accepted, I am this person. Right. He accepted me the way I was. Right. Meaning, I could build a biography for myself. I could build a biography for myself, you know, yeah. and say, this is the person I am. Yeah. So my biography is not just I'm the student of Dejigachan. Of course, my biography is much more uh, complex or much more colorful or much more uh, complex. Yeah, much more wild than just being the student of Dejigacha. Mm -hmm. But he enabled me to see a biography, to see a continuity, you know because he accepted, here's one person who accepted me the way I am. Yeah. 
So I don't have to wipe out anything and say this is an embarrassing part of my biography or this is a is a bad part of my biography or this is a very unhappy part of my biography or something. So in that sense, I feel, and because of that, I feel a little whole. I don't feel disjointed or, or dismembered. He helped you go in your directions, not his directions necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He helped you find your way home. Yeah. And in my personal case, uh, uh, Mark, I must tell you, see, because I, as I told you, I came from a relatively, I mean, not a poor in in the sense of India, poor, uh, but in a relatively, you know, low middle class group uh, family, I was, uh, I grew up and I had a very big struggle, you know, uh, not having any money. And then, you know, uh, coming to Germany, then later and starting to teach yoga and if it hadn't been uh, for circumstances where, uh, you know, I could fin- manage to live. My wife, she was earning very well, actually. So we managed and I could have a few years to get into it. But then I st- very early when I came to Germany, I started to invite Deshikacha, you know. And because I was wanting to introduce this tradition to Germany, it was not known at all then. And uh, I must tell you, right from the, not long before I invited him to Germany, Right from the day I came to Germany, he's been a friend to me. He's much more than many of my friends who never understood me living in the West because they don't know Western life. Deshikacha knew Western life, he could understand me. And on top of it, he not only understood me, he was really very empathizing towards, you know, being somebody who's living in two worlds. And then I started inviting him and he has done so much to promote me as a yoga teacher to sort of uh, support me as a yoga teacher and sort of uh, also speak positively my popularity or my rising popularity in the 90s i really have to thank deshigacha which means he not only you know was a guru in that sense he really gave me a profession and he gave me helped me financially to come out of the doldrums to sort of uh, get to sort of start leading a comfortable life so in that sense he's been a fabulous help for me personally he helped you in practical ways very practical ways Uh, yes (laughs) as well as um help you understand some of the deeper things that probably would have been lost to us if we just met krishnamacharya we wouldn't have been able to understand what this see i can tell you there have been when we were living in india uh, when I had some health issues or my wife had a health issue and I, I mean, she was a foreigner doing a very uh, enervating, enervating dance mm-hmm. and performing in India. So she, when she had health issues or a little child had the health issues, we would go to Deshikacha for consultation. So he would give some breathing practices, some medicines even, and he would consult his father. If it was too complicated, he would consult his father for some help and he would consult his mother also. So his mother would give some recipes, some, uh, he would, she would pound some uh, medical powders, father would give advice. Uh, so, so he was helping us even at this level very much, you know, as a family. Right. So, so it was, it was very profound, yeah. So in so that sense, I'm, I am really extremely lucky for, since uh, if, I, if I were to think back, you know. Yeah. They were both very um, humble men, weren't they? Krishnamacharya and Deskachar. I mean, they were p- certainly proud, uh, yet they, they, they both uh, would take the trouble to 
help anyone in egalitarian uh, ways, not, not being the, the boss, not being senior, not being the authorities of those who, are the, who they were helping. In the case of Desikacha, very, very much indeed, because, um, see, um, he was almost keen on having a lot of people from Western countries, from other, other countries, from Asian continents, from African continents, from the Hindu, from the Christian community of India, from the Muslim community of India, from the very poor sections of India. He was almost, you know, bent on having people from all backgrounds because yes. to practice this egalitarianism, which was sort of very, very fundamental to his belief. I like what you said, Sri Ram, is that Deskachar came uh, to yoga as someone who was already informed of uh, of engineering and science he he had already been doing something and that he came uh, to yoga on uh, on the decision from his own empirical investigation of the subject uh, mm -hmm. he was convinced of it intellectually and emotionally before he really entered um, a serious study mm -hmm. of it he told a story of seeing a New Zealand woman who was deeply moved because Krishnamacharya had healed her of a lifelong illness. And he saw the woman run across the yard and give uh, his father a big hug, which is a very unusual sight. You know, you don't hug a stern, you know, elderly Brahmin male, especially a teacher. But he witnessed this and he said from that time on, he knew there was something very important that his father was offering and he wanted to investigate what that was. And from that point on, he began to study at the age of 27. But he was already very much involved in another lifestyle before he took that on. Yeah. I took him to meet that New Zealand woman when he came in 95. Uh -huh. Her name was, uh, I forget her name, Kay Malburnan was her name. Uh -huh. And they had a meeting and it was a beautiful meeting. I witnessed what you just said, that he was very interested, and I think his father too, that this yoga traveled throughout the world to every kind of person, to all cultural groups, all all religions, all, all countries. And he... he spark that work in a way mm -hmm. and i think that is uh, partly why he was uh, so happy about what you did you know to to take this knowledge to europe yes exactly i think that because of that we had a special very special uh, uh, connection because he thought i was somebody off the fields you know yeah. going and living there and uh, transporting his uh, teachings the way he's understood it and uh, sort of spreading the knowledge there. He found he was very, very happy about the fact that I left uh, uh, India. So although I would have, uh, you know, uh, although for me, for him in a certain way, it was a loss because I was one more a teacher who was, uh, you know, a teacher who was gone for the yoga mandiram. But uh, so it was a personal loss for him. But in sense, it was also a personal gain for him, not only for myself, that he suddenly had a teacher, uh, you know, from his own background uh, coming there and living here. Yeah. And he appreciated that very much. And that's why, I mean, his appreciation was also the reason why I could sort of uh, really build up here in the West so easily. 
he gave me a lot of support and and in a sense i do play a very special role especially given the fact that i'm in germany through all my uh, travels in my late uh, uh, theater years in india uh, you know i also started getting uh, learning german and then i met this german woman and you know so i was getting into german language and then suddenly i was living in germany and i started to read and then uh, read and my wife was already writing books at that time started to read a lot her her writings etc on dance etc so i got into german language and suddenly i was in a country where there was in a not even in english but in a european language i was teaching as an indian a sort of texts of india coming straight straight out of the background and so i think that that made a lot of impact my yoga sutra translation in german is appreciated very deeply and uh, and because of my connection to sanskrit and to the indian tradition and my knowledge of german i i played a sort of very specific and uh, uh, positive role here but you know you see if i if you look at deshikacha his uh, I mean, as you said a little earlier, it was really his mission, and of course, carrying on the mission of his father to really bring yoga across to all continents and uh, to all people all over the world. But behind Krishnamacharya's thinking and behind Deshikacha's thinking, even more, there is this very, very strong idea of universalism. In terms of, uh, you know, there is a. yoga is not something conservative is not something fanatic is not something uh, exclusive i mean we all breed even animals we all breed all mammals in the same way similar to how uh, humans do so the breadth is a common factor for all of us so what more do you want so we are all one species if you look at the sankhya which is a sort of a uh, fund foundation of yoga it says there's only one human species very clearly it's a very strong statement in the middle of sankhya karika so this idea that we are one human species is very strong with behind the wave in which krishnamacharya deshikachara understood yoga and uh, today if i think back of deshikachaya i'm also very very glad he was my teacher and not somebody else because i would if i would look at many of the maybe teachers of the 60 70 80s 90s in india of the big teachers i wonder i when if i would sort of sort of uh, my premises or if i would sort of suggest oh which party would they vote for what would their political inclinations be etc i know for i'm damn sure deshikacha's political inclination is not for any hindu party or christian housing party he would say nothing doing yeah yeah nothing doing make so no hindutva party would ever get any vote from him you know yeah yeah so and i don't know how many of these yoga teachers masters would think to similarly you know right, right. so i'm very glad i was in the right boat even in this count you know in terms of having become a student of deshikachar or not of somebody else yeah so and if you look back at somebody like uh, like ramakrishna and vivekananda who played a very major role in modern indian spirituality ramakrishna of course very very much but even vivekananda see vivekananda was i mean he was a hindu what do you call in uh, 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 orange robes unlike let's say deshikacha even krishnamacharya 
but he was speaking of a universal religion of a universal culture of a universal faith and he, I mean he believed very strongly in the role of vedas and hinduism in presenting it but he was never ever placing hinduism above christianity or above islam or above anything else right right for him even the so i mean you know given the times in which he was living where islam islam culture was very major factor in indian uh, politics and society before partition etc so not long before partition where india was a bigger country and so the soul of the soul of india is hindu is but the body is very islamic you know in sense the two are, are sort of you know there there is a they are very much intertwined Yeah. so there is no fundamentalism at all in these big big people and there i'm so glad because deshikachar is really you know young minds are dangerous because they can go in any directions so i'm so glad i've entered into the subject of indian spirituality in a deep way i entered in the household or in the footsteps or in the <laughs> in the environment of deshikachar and not of somebody else yeah the summary statement that yoga must be adapted Uh, to each person and the cultural background of each person whatever yeah. if a person's an atheist that's to be respected you know if a person whatever their religion or non-religion might be uh, adapt yoga to the needs of that person not to migrate them to your point of view or your your language or your your particular cultural identity but respect theirs absolutely a fundamental and of course you know even if you we have people who think differently politically or socially it is their right to think the way they are thinking yeah and uh, uh, so there is also a universal universality about accepting different uh, thinking you know so yeah. i don't think for, it's an exclusion of people who are thinking differently yeah. it's a statement that this inclusiveness is a fundamental truth it's yeah. almost all true speak you know and i think deshkach has stood very much behind it and so being very highly tolerant mm. towards anybody and everybody whether it is a very conservative conservative thinker or liberal thinker or maybe even a fundamentalist a thinker inclined to fundamentalistic ideas or thinker who's extremely anti fundamentalistic whatever you know it's very inclusive and uh, this idea is is very much present in yoga there is the mind is always presenting truths the way the mind is positioned right yeah so yeah. there's an always an angle and on and and a sort of a, a perspective yeah right there is no objective truth there is only a perspective based truth right. yeah which is to be respected and received in each person's case yeah mm. exactly so um, in that sense it's a, a great teaching and krishnamacharya was you know given the fact that he came from such a such a strongly traditional background uh, it's amazing the amount of liberalism in his thought yeah i know from some of his very young female students the ideas about womanhood the idea ideas about the role of women in society and about the about the rights of women in society mm. i mean it's incredible 
And it's all based on, I mean, in his case, it's always all, everything is based on some quotations from some parts of the Vedas or some other texts. But I mean, he was extremely liberal. Yeah, and he did his best in a deeply misogynist society for human rights, women's rights, and bring them yeah. as in their own empowerment mm. as life itself. Yeah. And, you know, that's a, it's also a little sad part of the story because uh, Krishnamacharya has trained so many young women and uh, I mean, young when he was in the, in the 80s and 90s, women who were very young then, you know, at that time. And of course, his own uh, daughters and uh, others who have been close to him. And, and none of these people, only a very few handful of people who have had big interaction with Krishnamacharya have become teachers in an in international scale. And uh, many of these women are not even known, you know, who have learned so much from Krishnamacharya. And of course, from all these students, Deshikaja plays a unique role for the mere, uh, the mere fact, merely because of the fact that he's been longest with him and closest with him, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so by the time you got to Europe, um, yeah. the, the young uh, students of Krishnamacharya, mainly the famous uh, BKS Iyengar, who was already uh, well established as a, really as a, as a master of yoga, um, yeah. a, as was a number of, including the um, Shivananda Swamis who toured the West and lived in the West. And so there was a lot of um, these brands of yoga had already been established in mm -hmm. Europe. And I imagine, so you come along and in this, uh, this yoga world that was already established, I imagine that you were a small voice in the midst of a, a big growing yoga scene that was quite different from the knowledge that you held and the way that you taught. How did that work for you to be uh, thrown into a world that already had a lot of presumptions about what is yoga? And, and, and even, you know, the styles of yoga of, you know, very exaggerated sort of gymnastics being popularized as what yoga is. How did you deal with all of that? It wasn't uh, easy at all. It wasn't easy at all. I mean, first of all, in, um, in Germany, I think in most parts of Europe too, yoga wasn't as popular as it was in England or in the US. And I don't know how it was in Australia, New Zealand in those years. In the, seven, in the 80s, I mean, the late 80s and early 90s. But in Germany, it was not too popular. But of course, I mean, it was popular enough that all these styles were established. There were schools in all the major towns and cities, uh, yoga schools, I mean. And uh, one of the early questions I had, I was confronted with was, what is the style of yoga you're teaching? Right. I said, I'm teaching yoga. There's yeah. no need to it. Yeah. It's yoga. It's, and then uh, my wife said, you know, you're going to get bugged by this problem. So just call it traditional yoga. Right. So if somebody asked, bug me with a question, I would say, okay, it's traditional yoga. So traditional yoga, as though it was a brand name, yeah, which wasn't, I wasn't using, using traditional yoga as a brand name, but I'm just saying, you know, if somebody asked me the question, I would say it, you know, but, uh, but I was, uh, on uh, to students who were really coming and practicing and you know wanting to learn more if they would ask me uh, what shall I call this yoga and what name shall I give I would say it's yoga there's no name to it 
And already I remember when I was teaching in the 80s at the Yoga Mandiram, Deshikacha put us, us meaning me, he put this question across to all his students who were teaching at the Mandiram. Uh, this question of whether we give the name, uh, give yoga a name here. And because he said in many of my Western students, he told us that time when we were in India, uh, are wishing to have a name because everybody's got a name. And there is an idea that the name Vini Yoga be used as a name for this tradition. And you see, I mean, he just posed it as a question to all of us. And of course, we were all, uh, for us, it, uh, I mean, there was no question of bringing any brand name into this. So all of us, almost like, uh, uh, you know, uh, in one voice said unison, no, nothing doing, no name, it's yoga. So uh, Andesh Kacha was glad to receive this answer because it is his own opinion too, I guess. And anyway, so the word Vinayoga didn't enter India, so to say, you know, although it did enter into parts of the West. And uh, um, uh, so when I came to uh, the West and uh, people, there was there were just two two students of uh, Deshikacha who had, they were actually studying with me when, when I was living in India. But when I shifted to Germany, they started taking Deshi, uh, classes with Deshikacha. Deshikacha started to teach them. And so apart from them, there wasn't anybody here who knew Deshikacha really. And so the style Vinayoga wasn't known, but it was known a little bit in France and England. And so people who had heard about it asked me, I said, no, 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 I don't know what's Vinayoga. I don't want to do it. I don't have anything to do with Vinayoga. I'm not teaching Vinayoga, I told them. You know? So I ever avoided this question. So it was very difficult. But then that was, the name was one problem. The other problem was, this is not yoga because classical yoga is Danurasana, Shalabhasana, Sarvangasana, Halasana, Headstand, etc. etc. And this is not classical yoga, you know, raising your arms and lowering your arms and bending your body and, you know, uh, what is this, etc. This is not yoga. So I had to convince them this is yoga. I had to convince them and said, this is Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. You can read what it says about yoga. And this is Hatha Yoga Pradipika. You can say what it says. It says, buddy, you stay all alone in a, in, a, in a hut, far away from society, no travel, no women, no nothing, eating once a day, living an absolutely quiet life with no contacts with anybody, not speaking, and you do six hours of Paschimottanasana, six hours of Gomukasana, etc. So this is Hatha Yoga, dear man. You want to do this Hatha Yoga, you better do that. This is not Hatha Yoga, which you are doing. You know, a little bit of, you know, standing on your head and standing on your shoulders and doing this. This is some sort of an asana practice. So this is your way of understanding yoga. This is my way of understanding yoga. Right. And if you look at Hatha Yoga Pradipika, what does it say? Breath, breath, breath. So you'll have 200, 200, uh, let's say out of 100 verses in Hatha Yoga Pradipika, 80 of them will be talking about the breath. So where is the breath? Where are you talking about the breath here in the way you're practicing yoga? See, we are doing all about breath here. Look at Patanjali, how much importance it gives to uh, Yoga Sutra, gives to breath in uh, comparison to, you know, uh, the role of uh, body. I had a lot of good arguments. And of course, you know, people liked it because it was doing wonders for their physical body. And they said, actually, this is doing, I mean, just standing on your knees, bending forward and going into, the, into that cat pose and coming back. And in getting onto your knees, oh, really, with slow movement and exhalation and inhalation, one is so concentrated, the mind becomes quiet, the body becomes 
uh, uh, calm and the breath is flowing well. And then this is yoga. So they slowly started to understand this yoga can be so simple. So um, there was an acceptance slowly and um, and of course many people didn't like it, but a lot of people started to like it. And there were some young people who were 20 or 25, they liked it very much for a while. And of course, because I was myself very young and I was doing a lot of very complicated physical postures also, you know, asanas, I mean, and vinyasas with jumps and all this. So I taught them. And then some people for, for whom it was not enough. I said, you wait for another 10 years. You are 35 now. When you're 45, you'll come back. You know, when you're 45 and 50, you will not want to do this yoga and suddenly you will call this gentleman yoga or lady yoga, you know, because now you're a zero <laughs> advanced, a little bit advanced age and you know that you can't twist and turn and bend your body like you, you did with 25. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm sure that you <clears throat> brought these principles from Krishnamacharya into Europe and that many people who were practicing the popular styles that had been seeded by Mr. Iyengar and so forth, they would have, you would have given these principles that they would, could have added to the yogas that they were doing. That was probably the most amazing, uh, that was the most amazing experience for these students or people who learned yoga. Mm. That finally there's somebody who's explaining the, the fundamentals and the logic mm. and the meaning and the, and the, uh, being the practice and also giving an idea of where we are getting towards these principles that we hold from Krishnamacharya through Desikacharya, they belong in everything that derived from Krishnamacharya. So, yeah, Iyengar being a young student and Patabi Joyce being young students of Krishnamacharya, there's that these principles can certainly be included in, in all the asana that they taught, and the whole matter of. Uh, vinyasa krama sequencing, uh, correct sequencing according to the needs of each person. Yeah. And uh, the breath and bandha being the basis of the asana, whatever it is. And I think this is uh, what we represent as, you know, holding a, the total spectrum of the um, information that Krishnamacharya brought forth from those wisdom traditions. Yeah. And being integrated into into the one yoga <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so there's only one brand of yoga and it's capital y yoga yeah exactly there's only one brand it's capital y yoga nothing yeah. else yeah. yes well i think you've done a wonderful job in europe to bring these <clears throat> principles through and the uh, of course you've only just gotten started and the job no, well, it's exciting times. You know, we've gotten started. We're on a roll. And now I think the world is perhaps uh, more receptive than ever uh, to receive the knowledge that you hold. Yeah. But in comparison to the 70s, 80s or, 80s or 90s, uh, now in the, uh, in the sort of 2020s, uh, we stand at a different point in regard, with regard to yoga. I mean, it's another type of... Um, it's a totally different type of problem which uh, we are confronted with. I mean, one of the problems I feel yoga is confronted with is the idea of uh, why are we doing asanas? And uh, the concept of fitness and physical wellness 
and uh, etc is becoming a very major uh, factor why people do yoga mm. which is very well and good i mean it's very good to stay fit it's very good to stay healthy and um, keep the body pepped and white uh, and sort of your vitality or whatever going but still there is a totally different aspect to this bodily practice which is also very deeply embedded in the yoga of krishnamacharya and i am worried that uh, it gets subsumed by this sort of this sort of flood of yoga for the body you know mm. this sort of body centered yoga of the modern times so yeah. there i am a little more a little worried too about you know the trend yoga is taking yeah that's why i say put the principles of krishnamacharya into the yoga that you know and love they belong there you know whatever mm. style or brand or if somebody comes at it from only a you know body fitness point of view or a gymnastic point of view um, well that's that's just the fact of it but now uh, put these principles in you know inhale from above receptivity exhale from below strength receiving uh, mm -hmm. the the uh, asana creating bandha that's inherent to the to the asana itself you know to mm -hmm. put these in no matter what you're doing <laughs> no matter what power power yoga or hot yoga mm -hmm. or ayanga yoga bikram yoga whatever it is it, it, put these principles in and see what happens Into it, yeah. your yeah sure your body your body wellness your body strength your body flexibility and your mind clarity mm -hmm. and so forth yeah that's a very good message uh, mark i mean that uh, that you sort of uh, what you're saying that's very important yeah is very important to sort of uh, always relate and go back to these principles as your sort of uh, anchor yeah. so that you can also you know bring more 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 uh, bring a different perspective a yogic perspective into the yeah. way we approach the body yeah yeah that's a good idea it's very important yeah you're right then there's the question in the world that everybody wants to have better relationships everybody wants to you know have, uh, be successful in the matter of intimate relationship yeah and i make that you know it's very clear you know that certainly in the life of our teachers deskachar and krishnamacharya they personally demonstrated this um the profundity of of uh, male female uh, collaboration yeah polarity and yeah. uh, deeply in their own in their own tradition this this matter of the the union of vedanta and tantra you know mm -hmm. the the influences from the from the the ancient tantras coming into the the guru parampara the ramanuja acharya of the 10th century and these mm -hmm. are very important points and that yoga was the practical means to be in the polarities that are natural to life that mm -hmm. are in a natural state that uh, allow success in in um, human relationships human intimate relationships and i think that's an angle that the world uh, is very keen to know about <laughs> yeah the the relationship of yoga to relationship mm -hmm. to, to intimate life Mm -hmm. so I, I think you're you're seeding that knowledge throughout Europe, and thank goodness. Yeah, and yes, you... it's a very important thought, actually, what you're saying here, also about this. You know, Deshkacha always said yoga is about relationship and about relationship building. You know, 
Yeah. And you yourself demonstrating that with your relationship with Anjali, yeah. very much a collaboration of equals. Yeah, I, I think so very much because there is a factor, uh, you know, see, it's, I mean, because we are living in a times where, you know, the subject of genders, uh, it's a very sensitive subject and where, you know, gender philosophies have their own way of interpreting things which are uh, maybe not quite in, uh, in concomitance with what tantric philosophies may say. But still, one can, you know, it's a basic idea in tantric as well as in yoga, where you have the idea of purusha and uh, prakriti or drashta and chitta. We are talking about a very, very basic duality, which is essential. So this is what Vishishta Advaita of Krishmacharya is also about, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not about non it is not about duality as such, but it's about a special for a Vishishta Advaita, yeah, a special form of non-duality, you know. So, but duality is there; it's a reality, and this reality is to be found in this man-woman, you know, in the male-female, not man, in the male-female aspects of uh, of life or of nature or of of, uh, of the cosmos. And uh, I do think it is a very, very important, essential part of the cosmos. And uh, which is Purusha and Prakriti. And of course, if you are saying it's a, this is an essential part, it's in you as Mark, it's in me as Sriram, it's in Anjali as a human being or in Rosalind or in any of us human beings, it's there, uh, both these parts, the male and the female parts. Yeah. But maybe because of, uh, you know, the way we are and the s- stuff we are made of or the substances we are made of, uh, a certain energy is more predominant in us, you know. So, in that sense, uh, something else predominates a little more, and uh, therefore we may be more male or male, more uh, female. But it's only by being um, confronted with the opposite that we can sort of establish a much finer or better balance within ourselves. Yeah. So it's more not not like me and and my partner building a unity. It, but it's me finding a unity because I'm in a good relationship where, you know, the partner plays a complementary role. And this par- particular, this partner uh, finding her own, you know, completeness because of, you know, being the presence of somebody who may be, you know, instigating in her this sort of completeness by being a complementary factor in her life, you know. So in this way, we complement each other and, and in a in a conversation, you complement with your thoughts, and I complement uh, your ideas with my thoughts. And or if you do uh, if you uh, do meditate, you complement yourself with a mantra you are uh, you are attached to, or you are attaching yourself to, or linking yourself to. And the mantra reveals something of itself, and therefore complements you. So even there, there's a dialogue, you know. So we are in dialogue everywhere. With uh, we are in dialogue everywhere and all the time. And so it's uh, if we stay in the state of dialogue, we it's always a dia. I mean, it's a dialogue. It's a, it, it means two factors, and therefore this duality is always there. So, uh, so I think if we if we keep that in mind. We can even do asana practice in a different way. Look at the body and learn from the body. Not tell the body you lie down and bend your back, but look at the body too. Say, well, listen to what the body says. This is what Deshikacha says. This is what Krishmacharya says. This is also part of the idea of Vinyasa Krama. 
you don't do something with the body you look at the body too right i like what so you even it becomes a conversation it becomes a dialogue so there is a sort of duality which you're playing with it's a tantric idea this is a very basic tantric idea you know mm. so i think uh, that way we are on we are yeah, we're in a good space with the knowledge which our teachers have given us. You know. Definitely, and I'm just struck by this a very simple statement from Krishnamacharya. It is yoga that joins the two to be yeah. one. Mm -hmm. Yoga is apparently, this is Ramanujaracharya. Yoga mm -hmm. must be there so the two are one. Mm -hmm. And they yeah. are one. But the mind lives as if they're not. <laughs> Mm -hmm. so this yeah. this, uh, this merge of of yoga with uh, Advait, not two, mm -hmm. but one only, God only. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This this um, this observation and the practice of yoga, and particularly the receptivity, the strength that is receptive, uh, is that practice of the two becoming one that enables. Exactly. That. Yes, I think the moment you you open yourself to this receptivity, then the two will merge and yeah. the completion takes place, you know? Yeah, yeah. When you came to um, over to the memorial in the United States, um, we were deeply moved when you took the stage and you did a little Vedic chanting. And mm -hmm. as I said, you were already in that culture. You were born into it. You know, you said yourself in this, this uh, dialogue we've been having, the, this music, the tonality, the language was already in you. And I just would wonder if you would comment for, for us of the West who um, migrated a little bit to that culture, but you know, we don't have this ability of Vedic chanting. It's a very rare Westerner who does. But, so we give it a, we, we attempt, you know, but when you gave us some mantra those days, uh, you had obviously been in the company, the personal company, and and learnt uh, Vedic mantra from Krishnamacharya and Desigachar. You, it was a, it was a beautiful experience to have that, and we were like, oh, we better shut up. We can't follow that, you know. So, what do you have to say for us uh, Western people who who uh, love this? Uh, fallen in love with this Vedic culture, but don't have the advantage of uh, being of that culture. Should we give up or should we give it a try? What do you think? <laughs> See, I would um, say in, uh, even in India, we have different uh, languages and people, when they recite in Sanskrit or chant in Sanskrit, their pronunciation is very influenced by, the, by their mother tongue. And uh, therefore, a person who's got Tamil as a mother tongue will recite or speak Sanskrit in a particular, with a particular tange, a person with Hindi, with another tange, etc. So it's not really perfect, even if somebody who is, is fairly good is never really perfect in that sense. Yeah. And that I must say, of course, I mean, I have, I have had two uh, uh, very important uh, uh, Sanskrit teachers who I've learned from. Both of them very uh, excellent teachers and excellent uh, Sanskrit scholars, but uh, Krishnamacharya was far, far, far above them in terms of uh, scholarship and knowledge, even of Sanskrit language. And so, I mean, I've uh, so 
Krishmacharya was he was really playing in a different league, I would say. But uh, so even for me, I know that there is a lot of shortcomings when I do it. So naturally, if you uh, let us say if you as a person from New Zealand or in, from the US or some other country or Germany uh, tries to uh, do Sanskrit mantras, there will always be a very strong accent, a very strong uh, move away from it. But this, so it's that pronunciation may not be a major factor because one can learn. One can really learn very well. And there are a lot of people who learn very beautifully in spite of not having the, uh, having a strong Indian uh, Sanskrit background. The problem, one other thing is the uh, one, uh, uh, so that can be mastered. The other thing is, the voice itself. See, when you're chanting, you are addressing something. You're not addressing something which is in front of you. You're not addressing a person. You're addressing something which is abstract. And uh, unlike, let us say, even in music, you're addressing something. Oh, you're singing to some divine force even, maybe, you know. But then music involves a lot of emotions and a lot of, you know, pining and love and sentimental, sentimentality, etc. Whereas here, there is no pining no sentimentality, no erotic feeling, not even, let us say, uh, uh, astonishment or, you know, uh, or, yeah, astonishment. It's more like, it's some sort of a very majestic, very uh, deep uh, attitude of being connected, you know, staying connected with a greater cosmic uh, reality. So it's a different, uh, almost emotion, I would say, you know. So you, it's not any of the eight rasas, but it's the ninth rasa, Shanta rasa, right. which you're into. So you're not into Sringara, the erotic rasa, or uh, Veera, the heroic rasa or something. You're in the Shanta rasa. So in that sense, it's very difficult in music, but at the same time, it's got certain qualities of the music, of music in being, in terms of it ought to be clear, it has to maintain pitch, etc. That's very important. So the quality of the voice is important. That's something which may be independent of your cultural background, you can still learn. Yet another factor is, see, in the Indian music, it is always flowing. You know, you can't play Indian music on a piano, theoretically, you know, you can't because it's discrete buttons. Yeah. You can do it on a, what do you call it, in a violin because it's a sort of, a, you know, yeah, as a... It's funny that... String, you... a, string, a string instrument, that is the word I was missing, yeah. Because it's a string instrument. Oh, yeah, Sitar, yes. <laughs> Beautiful. Just coincidentally. Sorry? Just coincidentally as you spoke it. Yeah. So unlike a sitar where you can play it, it's difficult on a piano, yeah? Or on a harmonium or something. But anyway, because there is this sort of connectivity from one tone to another, yeah, yeah. which is very, very important in Indian way of looking at music. This is something which a Western person has to get a feel for. And I think this is something which will only come if you relate yourself to India, Indian art, Indian life even. Otherwise, it's always tuck, tuck, tuck yeah. notes. Right. That doesn't work. Of course, a very good European musician doesn't play tuck, tuck, tuck. Yeah. There is, of course, a great connectivity from one tone to another. But the style of connectivity is a little bit different in the Indian music because, you know, you... Yeah, it's a subject by itself. So anyway, I think if you live in India, we get a feel for Indian art and Indian music, you understand what I mean and therefore you get into it. Therefore, it becomes, let us say, authentic, this chanting. 
and i think it's very important this connectivity because this the connectivity between the nodes has something to do also with our connectivity to the greater cosmos you know right. it's not you are there and i am here you know right it's a sort of uh, it's a sort of uh, almost you know a flowing connection between you and me and it's you are there and i'm here but our fingers are touching each other you know yeah and it's not just poetry and it's not just art there's something it's the ninth uh rasa it is shanti yeah peace bit, yes beyond yeah and yeah so perhaps anybody can feel that and try their best with all of the technical matters of sound exactly yeah so one can one can approach this and uh, see as i was quoting deshika earlier i mean you can unravel you can see mystery even behind a behind, behind anything for that matter so right. you can even see mystery behind a small text which you are chanting be, behind one single mantra word which you are chanting or or behind even a line of poetry let us say i don't know i mean you take a, a poetry of a, a line of william blake or something you know it could it could serve as a poetry where you really go into it as a piece of mystery which you are unraveling and not just mumbling that poem or that line but really say reading it out in a sort of you know voice which is which has got depth and which has got uh, which is sonorous and which has got mu- some musicality to it and of course in this atmosphere and this rasa of shanta whatever you know so i mean in that sense you could produce the idea of vedic chanting through even reciting english poems i'm with you by the way did you know that rosalind was a scholar of william blake did you no my god beautiful yeah yes. beautiful she's a she's a master of blake and how beautiful funny that you brought that forth yeah okay. i mean blake is beautiful it's just a stunning poet you must have some secret knowledge some pals but you know um i just want to say to you shriram there's that the all your um your many years with both our teachers krishnamacharya and deskachar um that you have come into this modern life and and live in the west as being a great um advantage to us you know who are trying to understand something of this and i i just want to thank you for that you know thank you for i mean there's been very um, a number of incidents where we've been in discussion and you've said a few just offhand things that have been profoundly helpful to me i just mentioned one of them was uh you know in bhagavad gita um krishna says to arjuna the yogi uh, commit i used to say oh arjun commit the inhale to the exhale commit the exhale to the inhale and i was speaking about this to you and you said um well actually uh, i think the sanskrit the translation of the sanskrit word is more sacrifice sacrifice the <laughs> so you said that to me and i this was a few years back and it was like a light came down you know it was like a revelation yeah. to me the the nuance of rather than commit sacrifice you know give to give the inhale to the exhale give the exhale to the inhale 
see so some simple um, meanings like that and understanding of the of the offerings from our teachers that have come through you that yeah. uh, have been um, personally very uh, rewarding to hear this from you so I just want to that's just one example that was a profound uh, and very important <laughs> teaching that came through you the word is not commit, the word is sacrifice so I just want to I, I thank you for that and acknowledge you for what you're doing in this world. And I do believe it is very, very important for this world at this time. And I'd like to just wind up as like, how do you feel about um, the pandemics that we're going through and, and what, what is our role as in yoga, as yoga teachers? What's the role of the yoga teachers around the world in the panic that humanity is in right now? What do you think? It shows the fragility of uh, human beings, the fragility of uh, societies which are very powerful, very rich, armed to the teeth and having enough resources to feed millions and millions and of people more than there are in this world. So even these very, very uh, sort of powerful, well-established nations in the world are so fragile when it comes to this pandemic and so many individual lives also in all these nations. So I think for us on the whole, to understand a little more about the fragility of our existence, whether we belong, we are living in a rich country like Germany or New Zealand or, or the US or, or, or in a poorer country like India or in Uganda. I think it's very important to understand the fragility of life. That's part of yoga, of course, very much to sort of, uh, you know, be appreciative about life, to sort of be thankful about life and also to value it and to sort of uh, make a few right decisions and at the same time, not to get too attached to it because it's fragile. And the other thing is, uh, see, this pandemic is a major problem, I believe. But all the same, we are having much more major problems uh, to tackle. It's, uh, you know, the loss of uh, diversity of life or in, in terms of, you know, uh, nature diversity, the, the warming up of the earth the increase of racism this uh, and fundamentalism and the amount of weapons being manufactured day by day second by second in all these huge factories all over the world i mean these are the real problems of the world and not the pandemic really and i don't know which political powers will be ever um, ready to tackle it you know and not willing to tackle it. So I think uh, it's time to reflect about this very much. And, and I mean, uh, we see now during this pandemic that there are concerted efforts, concerted efforts are possible and uh, concerted efforts uh, will be done if there is enough fear and in a feeling of emergency. But this feeling of emergency is not there at all. And, in, and I don't think uh, the pandemic deserves the same amount of emergency, feeling of emergency as some of these other issues do. And uh, in that sense, I'm a little different. Uh, I have a different opinion about the subject of uh, pandemic and the way it's being handled. 
Yeah, on the other hand, I also am also a sort of very strong, what you call spokesman or spokesperson of uh, alternative healing methods of, uh, you know, awakening the inner healer. So I'm a little worried that uh, the reaction to this pandemic is going to subsume this uh, entire subject of, you know, uh, self-healing and alternative healing. So we have to be on the alert and make sure that the alternative healing methods, apart from the uh, conventional modern healing methods, uh, also continue to remain strong and hold on to their uh, domains. I hear you on that. I hear you on that. And in terms of... Uh individuals right now in in their um, fear uh, you know maybe in lockdown in their homes and restricted yeah. in many many yeah. ways economically and and socially yeah. um i just want to report that um one uh, friend of yours that i had the privilege to teach uh she began our online course and i had never met her and she she began to practice and she said that she had been feeling frightened in lockdown with two little children and uh, she began to practice and suddenly she felt her home became a sanctuary rather than a prison and she felt mm-hmm. better in her in her skin in her home and um, <laughs> beautiful yeah yeah so i think there's you know I, I wish that we could reach the whole world that would be a dream uh, but in the meantime, we as many as individuals that we can reach to help them come home to their own breath, their own body, to their own life, to their own home, uh, to their own garden, perhaps. Uh, this, this is helpful in the meantime, in the midst of the, the uh, public traumas that are going on and the very real threats that are there. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that you're what you hold will spread throughout Europe rapidly. That's a very beautiful thought, Mark, that, uh, you know, you uh, use this time to get home to yourself and to your own home, your yeah. own breath. That's a very beautiful thought. Actually, if we can share that through yoga, then we have done a good, uh, uh, then you have served a very decent and very significant uh, role with yoga during this pandemic. And, um, and if we can give something to mitigate the fears which people have, which is, it's, it's, it's great. And uh, the less fear we have, I'm sure the better we are equipped to fight a uh, viral disease. Yeah. I'm sure it's uh, a very major thing which we, uh, we could contribute towards. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Sri Ram, for being such an impeccable student of um, our teacher, Deskachar and Krishnamacharya. And, being such a wonderful yoga teacher yourself and um, giving your whole life to this communication and to the world. Uh, so thank you so much. And I want to congratulate you on your lifelong uh, relationship with Anjali. And I want to thank uh, Anjali for bringing her book out, her life story. And um, I'm hoping that we are going to have it in English in due course so that we can all Read it. I'm very excited. What is the title of her book? As We Saved the World. There you go. (laughs) The title was set long before the pandemic came in. (laughs) Well, you know, really, that's uh, very excited to to read uh, Anjali's book. And um, 
that you have a children's book on yoga that I'm very keen to translate into English because it's a very important book, a very important contribution to the subject of yoga. And thank you for all the, all the publications that you've brought forth, your work on Patanjali Yoga Sutra. Uh, it's, it's a great work and it's a great guru parampara. And uh, yoga is universal. It's for everybody, as you pointed out. And uh, I'm very grateful to, to know you and learn from you. Thank you so much. Mark, thank you very much. I'm very, very uh, indebted to Deshikacha and of course to Krishmacharya too, you know, for all that I've learned from them. It's, it's sort of, uh, I, I cannot sort of ever pay it back, so to say. But I must say, I'm also extremely thankful for all these people who have been sort of, you know, part of my way and part of my yoga teaching uh, times. And for instance, you know, that you sort of uh, being so, such a good well-wisher, for me, it's a very, very big, uh, it's a very big factor that I have well-wishers like you. And I thank you very much. And it's not, of course, for the very fact that you are a well-wisher, but also the fact that you are carrying the message of yoga in such a beautiful way all across the world. And, and especially bringing home these very simple messages, which were also very dear to our teachers, like dealing with the breath, trying to understand relationships, staying simple, staying on the, with the feet on the floor. I'm very glad that you're doing this wonderful work also and spreading this knowledge. So, Guru Bhai, so to say, you know? Guru Bhai. I wish you also all the best and thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sri Ram. Thanks for listening to the Heart of Yoga podcast. If you'd like to make this a two-way conversation, either in person or online, have a look at heartofyoga.com. And we're very grateful for the support of the Heart of Yoga Foundation, and that is completely sustained by donations. So if you'd like to help this podcast continue, you can also donate on the website. Thank you so much.